Well, as the children are being dismissed to junior church and or nursery, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 35 and verse 9. Trying to look uh, this morning at verses 9 through 15. The title of our message this morning is, Who Owns the Land? Gee, Pastor, I wish you would talk about something more timely. (laughs) Who owns the land? Not trying to insert something just to fit the news, but it's right there in our passage this morning. God, at this point, is developing the nation of Israel through the patriarch Jacob, who has returned from Haran after 20 years, reconciled with his brother Esau. He goes into the land of Canaan, later to become the land of Israel. And the story, Genesis 34, describes the events at Shechem. And then the Lord tells him to leave Shechem and travel down south back to Bethel, which is a place where God had spoken to him 20 years earlier when God answered Jacob in the day of his distress when he was fleeing the murderous wrath of his brother Esau. There's where Shechem is, and down south is Bethel. And it's here that the Lord makes a divine appearance to Jacob. So here's the outline that we're going to follow today as we look at verses 9 through 15, as we get sort of more clarification concerning this special nation, the nation of Israel, that God is raising up. First, you see verse 9, a divine appearance. And notice verse 9, it says, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Haram, and he blessed him. One of the things to understand is that when God began to form the nation of Israel originally through Abram, God told Abram that he would be the recipient of blessings. Genesis 12 and verse 2, God says to Abram, I will bless you. And part of that blessing is he received direct communication from God. This is what Isaac received. It's also what Jacob uh, received. And you'll notice this expression here. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram. This is the second appearance that God has given to Jacob as he is returned to the land of Israel. He was up north in Haran where he was economically taken advantage of by Laban. God has been faithful to Jacob all of this time. He is now returned to the land of his birth the land of his nativity, and this will be the second time God has spoken to him while he is now back in the land of Israel. And this would be the fifth appearance that God makes in God's dealings with Jacob. You know, it's sort of tempting to look at that and say, boy, I wish uh, I was living back in patriarchal times. I wish I was one of the patriarchs. I wish God would sort of speak to me directly with an audible voice and a clear vision like he does these patriarchs. And the truth of the matter is God has spoken to you. He's spoken in four sources. The first source is creation itself, which tells us he exists. That's in Romans 1, by the way. The second source is in conscience, 
there's a barometer, a standard of right and wrong in each human being that God has put there. That's Romans 2, by the way, which shows us that God is moral. And then he has spoken to us. I'll share with you a little later the verse in Hebrews, but he has spoken to us in the person of Jesus. We have a human manifestation of God in the incarnate Son of God. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, you just read the gospel records. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then finally, God has spoken to us in his word. Because we have these 66 books of the Bible where God speaks consistently as we avail ourselves to him and his word. So so don't think that just because you weren't living 2,000 years before the time of Christ that you're somehow missing out on something. God is speaking constantly. And it says here uh, concerning God's appearance to Jacob, he blessed him. Jacob had striven much of his life for the blessing of God, even cheated his brother Esau out of blessings and rights of the firstborn. And here, everything Jacob had tried to get, God just gives him as a free gift. He had striven for this blessing and God simply gave it to him. And this here, what's going to follow is the second reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. Back in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15, same place, Bethel, 20 years earlier, God had already given to Jacob the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, originally given to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. There's a promise of land there promise of descendants that would be so numerous that they would be like the dust of the earth. There's the promise that I'm going to bless the world through you. And then there's the promise that I'm going to be with you wherever wherever you go. Tremendous blessings. What Jacob had wanted, he now received. And the truth of the matter is, as a Christian, a New Testament Christian living in the church age, you need to see yourself the same way. You have been radically and totally blessed by the Lord. It's just a matter of reading and investigating what's in your spiritual bank account. The book of Ephesians tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Notice that. I don't have to go to God and say, God, bless me. God says, I already did that. Who has blessed us with 95%, oh, doesn't say that, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's your current position in Christ Jesus. So we don't do things in life to get blessed. We do things in life living for Jesus because we already have been blessed. A lot of Christians give money to churches and whatnot to get blessed. That's not the right way of thinking. We give because we have been blessed. It's a completely different motivation for living. Jesus, speaking to that little struggling church named Smyrna in Asia Minor, which was under such great persecution says to them i know about your tribulation and your poverty but you're rich i know about the blasphemy of those who say they are jews and are not but are the synagogue of satan i know about your persecution the troubles you're having i i know about your thulipsis tribulations you're going through i know about your poverty but the truth of the matter is that little parenthetical comment You're rich. I don't know what your particular struggles are uh, this morning. We read all of the prayer requests and pray for them. Many people within the sound of my voice are going through some heavy circumstances. But you have to understand that from the vantage point of God, you go through those circumstances as a blessed individual. 
these blessings, spiritually speaking, have been transferred to you by way of grace at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. So we have this divine appearance, and now we have the reconfirmation of the name of Jacob, and you'll see that there in verse 10. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. Now, this is something that actually already transpired back in Genesis 32, verse 28. God had already said to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have, uh, have prevailed. This is a reconfirmation of what Jacob already had already received. What does this name Israel even mean? It basically means one who strives with God. You might recognize in that word Israel, the last couple of letters, L, which means God. The rest of the word is basically someone who strives with, contends for, struggles for, tries to attain God. And what a wonderful way to be known someone that's after the point of things of god to the point where they're struggling to attain him you know when i when i look back on my life i i I want to be that kind of a person someone that is seeking the things of god you know seeking the things that are above and that's where this name israel comes from it's at this point that the name Israel starts to get used as a synonym for Jacob. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 is a description of Israel's time of testing yet future. And it says in Jeremiah 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is to be a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved out of it. And Jacob, of course, is a name for Israel because Jacob's name was changed to the name Israel in Genesis 32, verse 8, and Genesis 35 and verse 10. By the way, that's one of the reasons you can't be in that time period. You'll be translated to heaven before that time period occurs. Because you, we, as members of the church, are not Jacob. The tribulation period is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. We are not the Jewish nation. That's why the church never shows up on the earth in any tribulation passage. You can look and try to find it. You won't find it. Because the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. But how did the Jewish nation ever get this name Israel? Well, here we're learning in terms of this explanation here. God gave Israel this new name, or gave Jacob, I should say, this new name. That theme would fit because the book of Genesis that we're studying is the book of beginnings. We have no knowledge of how things started without Genesis, the beginning of the universe, life, man, marriage, evil, clothing, religion, true salvation, language, government, nations. And we would have really no knowledge of how the nation of Israel even began without the book of Genesis. We would have no knowledge as to how the nation of Israel acquired the name Israel. It goes back to God changing Jacob's name. Now notice this, because it gets confusing if you don't get this point down. No longer will you be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel. Now that doesn't mean uh, Jacob will never be called Jacob again ever in the rest of the book. Because look at verse 22, same chapter.
excuse me, verse 20, same chapter. Jacob, see that? Set up a pillar over her grave. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought his name was changed. It was, but what God is saying is now the two are going to be used interchangeably. You can be called by either name. He's not taking Jacob's name and completely, you know, throwing it out. But why was his name changed? His name was changed because his identity changed. And in the Bible, you have to pay specific attention to the change of names of people because the new name that has been given to a person is typically a revelation of their destiny, who they are in God. For example, in Genesis 17 and verse 5, we've already learned that Abram's name was changed to Abraham. No longer shall I call your name Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. In fact, that's what Abraham means, and that would fit his destiny in God. God says the same thing to Sarah, his wife, who at that time was named Sarai. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall now call her name, uh, shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And then you get into the New Testament and you see God saying the same thing concerning Peter, whose original name was Simon. God says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter's name is changed from Simon to Petros, meaning stone. Jesus did not, contrary to Roman Catholicism and what it teaches arguing that Peter is the first pope. I mean, I hope Peter wasn't the first pope, because the next time he opened his mouth, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) But they try to argue that somehow the church was built on Peter, the first pope, and if you just study that in Greek, you'll see that that can't be so. When Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, he doesn't use the word Peter, Petros, little stone, He uses Petra, large stone, meaning the church is built on Peter's confession, not Peter. Because Peter was sort of wishy-washy, was he not? This is the man that would deny the Lord three times. Jesus never built the church on Peter. Jesus built the church on Peter's confession as to the veracity, the accuracy of who Jesus is when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter got the answer right. And Jesus says, upon this rock, your statement, I'll build my church. But having said all that, your name is now changed to Petros, meaning little stone. You're the little stone, and upon your confession, I will build my church on the big stone, Petra. And it's very exciting to travel to the land of Israel and go up north to Caesarea Philippi where this whole exchange took place. Because when you get up there, you'll see a giant cliff and then you'll see places, um, once you get off the cliff, places you can sit down and relax, filled with little, little rocks. And it was probably in that kind of environment that Jesus said, Peter, you're Petros, and he pointed to one of those little rocks. But upon this stone, your confession, and he probably pointed to that giant cliff, I'll build my church. And so it's interesting to be in the exact locations where these things take place because a lot of the things that you read about in your Bible sort of start to You know, you're no longer watching the movie in black and white. You're seeing the color version. And that's why we encourage people to go to Israel. I know no one wants to do that right now, but there'll be opportunities. By the way, you're going to rule the world there for a thousand years in Jerusalem. You know that, right? 
So you might as well go over and get your real estate claimed. One way or another, you're going to get to Jerusalem. And so Jesus has given this new name to Peter as a revelation of who he would become. Not who he was, but who he would become. You're going to be like a rock. And he wasn't much of a rock when the Lord found him. This was the man that would open his mouth and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, as I call him. Uh, He uh, denied the Lord three times. He walked out on the water and took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink. But Jesus said, no, you're a rock. And it's so exciting to see what the Lord did with this man, how he became that person of stability as you read through the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 10. So the Lord names us not based on who we are, but what we're going to become. That's why this change of names is very significant in the Bible. Jesus speaking to that little church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven from my God. And my new name. So Philadelphia you get three names. Number one the name of God. Number two the name of the city is written on you. Why? Because Paul in Philippians 3 verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven. And then the third name written on the child of God is my new name. Three names. The the naming of God, the naming of people, the naming of his people based on different aspects of their future. I believe that you receive a new name the moment you trust in Christ as your Savior. Because 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. I think God at that point names us according to our future. Jacob was not named here. He was to some extent based on what he was, but what the nation would become, what God would do with this very special nation, the nation of Israel. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant, verses 11 and 12, reconfirmed. We have God's self-identification, verse 11, God's command, verse 11, and then there's some information about Jacob's posterity, these 11 sons, Benjamin, yet to be born, number 12, towards the end of this chapter. Notice, first of all, how God identifies himself. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 35. God said to him, I am God Almighty. The name for Almighty here is El Shaddai. In fact, there's a famous song, El Shaddai. And I'm going to sing it now. No, I'm not going to do that. But Genesis 17.1 also used this name, El Shaddai, to describe God when he was dealing with Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. I just changed your name. For I have made you the father of uh, many nations. And then back in Genesis 17, verse 1, God says to Abram, whose name he's about to change, By the way, Abram, let me give you one of my names. It says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And that's the first time God Almighty, El Shaddai, is used. And so these different names of God are so significant because they reveal his different relational attributes manifested to us. We've already seen El 
El means God. El Roy, the God who sees. We've already seen El Olam, the everlasting God, the uncaused cause. We have already seen the name Jehovah Jireh, speaking of how he is the God of provision. In fact, have you been making a list of the names of God as we've gone through the book of Genesis? Don't feel bad if you haven't. I made it for you. Look at that. And in parenthesis is the scripture where you can find these names. Elohim, referring to his power. Yahweh, referring to his relational qualities, how he wants a relationship with us. El Roy, referring to his awareness. He sees what's going on. El Olam, he is eternal. Jehovah Jireh, he's the provider. He is the God who Isaac feared, speaking of reverence. He deserves reverence. He is the God of the God of Israel, speaking how he has formed a particular nation. He is El Bethel, the God of the house of God. This is my house. More on that later. And then he is El Shaddai. He is, he is almighty. This is how God reveals himself in this disclosure to, to Jacob. Verse 11, God said to him, I am God almighty. Now here comes a command. This should sound familiar. Be fruitful and multiply. That goes all the way back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? Except in Genesis 1, it was a little different. There was language of dominion. Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. Subdue the earth and rule over it, Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.26, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the sky, the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You'll notice that when be fruitful and multiply is re Iterated here, the language of dominion is not found. Why is that? Because humanity already lost that round. That was lost in Genesis 3. Satan, this is how he became by deceiving our forebears into ruling the world system. The rest of Scripture calls him the prince of this world, the God of this age, the prince and power of the air, the one who the believer wrestles with. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He, he says the whole world lies, First John 5, verse 19. You can see the Scriptures where we get all these. The whole world lies in the, in the lap of the wicked one. And folks, um, that's not going to change until Jesus comes back and sets it right. This is what our forebears, Adam and Eve, gave away. They gave away the authority of the earth. That battle is lost. It's going to take the personal entry of Jesus and the binding of Satan during the millennial kingdom to fix this problem. So that's why you'll see Genesis language frequently displayed as we're moving through Genesis from Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply will be used, but the dominion language isn't there. It's operating from the understanding that that's a battle that was already lost, that Jesus is going to have to fix. Why would he say be fruitful and multiply? Because these Jacob's dozen, Benjamin yet to be born, they are going to become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, they're going to have so many descendants that they're going to be like the sand of the seashore and the dust of the earth and the stars of, of the sky. So what he's saying is, you know, get, get, get moving, folks. <laughs> Start to reproduce because we're, we have a nation that's being formed here. And you continue on there, second part of verse 11 and into verse 12, it, you start to see very specific promises concerning Jacob's dozen. 
Jacob's sons. God says, after he says, be fruitful and multiply, verse 11, he says, a nation and the company of nations will come from you. And watch this. Kings shall come forth from you. Number one, there's a specific nation that's coming forth at this point. And of course, that specific nation has a name. We've been given the name earlier in the chapter. It's the nation of Israel. That nation becomes a very, very big deal in the outworking of God's purposes because God says, I am going to bless planet Earth through that nation. Genesis 12, verse 3, in you, Israel, in other words, all the families of the earth will be blessed right down to a Messiah that's coming. Numbers 24, verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from, what's the next word? Jacob, which is a synonym for what? Israel. A scepter, that's authority, shall arise from Israel. See how Jacob and Israel are being used interchangeably there? And shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. There's a Messiah that is coming into the world through Jacob or Israel. He's going to have a scepter and watch for the star. And by the way, this prophecy here, Numbers 24, verse 17, was given in Babylon. That's why you have the Magi. It's on all your Christmas cards, right? Or will be. Coming from that part of the world that had access to that prophecy. Following a star at a particular time in history. And they knew where, where the star, what the star meant. And they knew who the ruler was coming through. That's why they made the journey from 350 miles in the east, modern-day Iraq. No modern-day transportation, obviously, 2,000 years ago. Following this star, wanting to connect themselves to this Messiah that was coming. Matthew 2, verse 2, they're going to say, We have seen his star in the east. And are coming to worship him, which is proper homage that you give to someone that's coming with authority, with a staff as a ruler. And it's a huge rebuke to the Jewish nation because here these guys with just one or two prophecies were figuring it out. They wanted to make a journey 350 miles, modern-day Iraq, into the land of Israel, no modern-day transportation, to pay homage to the king who they knew was coming, connected with a star. And here the nation of Israel with a completed canon of Scripture. Hebrew Bible was right there at their fingertips. They couldn't put two and two together. And yet these guys from the east could. And so I like what it says here, wise men still seek him. But this is part of God's purpose for Israel. God would bless the world through Israel. There's three primary blessings. Number one, the scripture, Romans 3 verse 2, has come to us through the Jewish people. There's not a Southern Baptist author in the whole book here, all Jewish. Luke is the only one that's debated anymore. Jesus was Jewish to the core, John 4, 22. I mean, Jesus wasn't even a member of a Bible church, folks. He was absolutely Jewish to the core. And then, of course, Israel is the gift that keeps on giving because the future kingdom will be headquartered in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 Verses 2 and 3. None of which is possible had God not called Abram, Isaac, Jacob, given them these promises and formed this very special nation, the nation of Israel. And the promises don't stop there. 
Not only is a nation going to come from you, but a bunch of nations. It says there, a company of nations will come from you. And that is exactly what happened to Abraham. Abraham is not just the progenitor of Israel. He's the progenitor of many nations because there's that incident in Genesis 17 where he impregnates Hagar. And Ishmael is born. Genesis uh, 17 and verse 5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. All of those green areas are other nations that have come into existence through the Abraham-Ishmael line, Israel just being one of many. But God says something very interesting here to Jacob. A nation, verse 11, and a company of nations will come from you. Quoting here Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he says, However, no other nation than Israel came from Jacob, unlike Abraham. The Hebrew word kahal is used here relating to a company of nations. This word is used uniquely of Jacob. It was not used in reference to Abraham. It is the same word that is used of the congregation of Israel. Therefore, a company of nations was not a reference to other nations, as it was in the case of Abraham, but a reference to the tribes of Israel. The way it should read is that a company of tribes will come out of Jacob and so indeed a company of 12 tribes comprise this one nation. It may very well be that this also was intended to mean that there will be such a multitude of Jewish descendants so that it would appear as if many nations came from Jacob. I mean, there's going to be so many Descendants, it's going to look like multiple nations, although here it's most likely speaking of the tribes of Israel. Would we not expect this in the book of beginnings to get information about this very special nation? And then he goes on and he says, kings are going to come forth from you, Jacob. A nation, verse 11 of Genesis 35, and a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come forth from you. Interesting, that's what God said to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Genesis 17, verse 16, it says concerning Sarah, I will bless you, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of many nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And my goodness, has the Lord not fulfilled his word there? Kings have come forth. The nation of Israel was divided into two after Solomon left the throne for purposes of discipline. You have the ten northern tribes and you have the two southern tribes and you have a whole book in your Bible called the book of First and Second Kings. Now why in the world would God include a book called First and Second Kings in our Bible. First of all, why is it called First and Second Kings? Because when you read it, there's a lot of kings. Why would God include that as part of the biblical canon? Because God said, that's what I would do. That's what I'm going to do. In fact, the northern kingdom would have 19 kings. And not a single of them, one of them would be a good king. If your team goes 0-19, that's not a great season. The remaining southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, God always seemed to have more grace on the south, partly because the Messiah is going to come from Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. Things were a little better over there. There was 20 kings, eight of which were good. 
But by and large, most of these kings were disobedient to God. God had to deal dramatically with them via divine discipline. And praise the Lord, there's coming from the nation of Israel a perfect king that won't mess things up. And that's Jesus Christ. These kings will pave the way to the king. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the ultimate king. And this is all an outworking of what God promised to Abraham, Sarah, and you see this now related to Jacob. Yeah, but pastor, the title of your message was, Who Owns the Land? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 12 tells you who owns the land. He says, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. The land promises first start getting articulated in Genesis 15 and verse 18. Where God says to Abraham, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, which is probably the Nile, as far as the great river Euphrates. I'm going to give you, Israel, a chunk of real estate that will go from all the way from modern Egypt all the way to modern Iraq. A chunk of real estate that has never completely fallen into Jewish hands. Never happened in Solomon's day. It never happened in modern times. And so that's why we believe in a future kingdom called the millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ, where every single specific land dimension will find a literal fulfillment and a literal realization. God originally said to Abraham who was then Abram, to your, Genesis twelve seven to your descendants I will give this land. And then in Genesis 26, verse 3, he said to his son Isaac, to your descendants I will give these lands. And then you see the same thing now being given to Jacob. Verse 12, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. I will give the land to you and your descendants after you. Now, who are these descendants? We know who they are. Their name was just changed, wasn't it? Verse 10, from Jacob to Israel. Who owns the land? The nation of Israel owns the land. Now, this is very interesting because God says something here that it's easy to read this real quick and miss miss something. It says, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, Jacob. Speaking of him as an individual. And, second part, I will give the land to your descendants after you. So it's going to go to you and it's going to go to your descendants. Problem, Jacob never received this land when he was alive. And God specifically said, you're going to receive it. Well, if God means what he says and says what he means, then what has to happen to Jacob? He has to be resurrected so this land provision can be fulfilled. This then becomes an implicit reference to Jacob's future resurrection. Jacob has to be resurrected to receive this land because he never received it when he was alive. In fact, none of the patriarchs did. The only thing Abraham and the rest received was this little burial plot that they purchased in Genesis 23. I think it was from the sons of Heth to bury Sarah and the patriarchs were buried there. That's all they ever received. They They never received what God said they would get Real estate from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq. Now, do you believe the Bible is literally true? I hope you do. I do. And if God means what he says and says what he means, and it's impossible for God to lie, God has to take Jacob and resurrect him, just like the other patriarchs. 
so they can receive these promises. Their future resurrection is described in Daniel 12, verse 2. Much later in history, this would take us now to about the 6th century B.C. What we're dealing with here in Genesis is 2000 B.C. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Wow. Everyone's getting resurrected. Believer and unbeliever. The righteous are resurrected unto life. The unbeliever is resurrected unto damnation. And as the righteous are resurrected unto life at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, here comes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in resurrected bodies to receive the land exactly like God said they would get. God God keeps his word, folks. Sometimes we don't do a very good job keeping our word, but God keeps his word. Who owns the land? This is what the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, said this week. And the first part of his statement is is good. It's the second part that's a problem. He said what Hamas did was horrific and there was no justification for it. I wish he had just stopped talking at that point. You have, uh, what, 1,400 Israelis dead. You have 200 hostages, 20 of whom are American citizens. Um, I was reading that something like this has not happened to the nation of Israel in terms of this volume of death since the Holocaust. I mean, it's just been unbelievable what has happened. And even more shocking than that is... Crowds gathering everywhere to sort of defend the right of the Palestinians as if Israel attacked the Palestinians. That's what surprised me. Our campuses and our students and some of our politicians alive and well speaking on behalf of the Palestinians against Israel when Israel is the victim. So the President of the United States said what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. Then the article I'm quoting from said, Obama said following that statement immediately after. In other words, he quickly qualified it. By saying, and what is also true is that the occupation... And what's happening to the Palestinians is unbearable. In other words, a bad thing happened to Israel. But, you know, at the end of the day, Israel kind of brought it on herself because she's occupying someone else's land. Did you see the word occupying here? What does that even mean? It means you're adversely possessing something that doesn't belong to you. Here's the truth of the matter, folks. You cannot occupy something you own. It's impossible. Israel is not occupying anything. Because you're reading right here in your Bible that God gave the land to the Jewish nation. I found this one uh, floating around social media world. Israel doesn't occupy the land. They own it. Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. Oh, come on, Pastor, you can't do that. You can't just pull out your Bible like that and resolve a tension in the Middle East. There's a lot of people that don't, don't believe the Bible that you're reading from. Okay, fine. There's other ways you can argue the case. And I hope, I hope this book is in your library on the left from time immemorial by the late Joan Peters. Prior to her death, you could see her sometimes on Fox News. She was as left as they can get. And she went over there to the land of Israel to disprove the Jewish legal claim to the land. 
And the problem is, as she got into the subject matter, she found the law was actually on the side of the Israelis. And she changed her mind. She wrote a whole book about it, spans several hundred pages. It's a pretty dense read. But if you want actual legal documentation that Israel is not occupying anything, you can't occupy something you own. That's where I would start. How about this other guy on the right, Dr. Jacques Gauthier, a Canadian international lawyer. I've heard him speak live. You can go to YouTube and watch his lectures, who worked on a doctoral dissertation at the University of Geneva for 20 years. And he had hostile readers that didn't like what he was saying. And he had to consequently (laughs) dot every I, cross every T. And he says, here's the conclusion. And by the way, because he went through this process, he has produced a doctoral dissertation that now has become a book. You can Google it and find it very easily, which is an academic work that is unassailable. That's what this 20-year rigorous process that he went through yielded in terms of fruit. What's his conclusion as an attorney as he was looking at what happened post-World War I from the League of Nations in what's called the San Remo Accords? What happened post-World War II, United Nations Partition, 1947? Here's his conclusion. You can say whatever you want about the Jewish people. You can love the Jewish people. You can hate the Jewish people. Here's what you can't say. You cannot say Israel is doing anything illegal by being there. Israel is occupying nothing. Yet the truth of the matter is what everybody thinks is Israel must be doing something wrong to bring this terrorist attack upon herself. Because after all, the president of the United States uses the word occupation. Folks, you cannot occupy what you own. God gave them the land, number one. And number two, the legal system, if that's not enough for people. As demonstrated by the Joan Peters book and the Dr. Jacques Gauthier work, irrefutably demonstrates that. So just keep that in mind when people say occupied, 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 giving the impression that somehow Israel must be doing something illegal to bring this terrorist attack upon herself. That is utter and sheer propaganda. And the college youth of today are marching by the drumbeat of free Palestine, a name that doesn't even exist. Free Palestine from the river to the sea, the land of Palestine will be free. You know that's their mantra. Rashida Talib has now been censored in the House of Representatives, rightfully so. I think she should be impeached myself for using that phrase. Ilhan Omar, another one of the squad, as Trump calls them, uses that phrase. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uses that phrase. From the river to the sea, the land of Palestine shall be free. What are they even talking about from the river to the sea? What river? Let's see. Can I go back and find my map? The river is the Jordan. The sea is the Mediterranean. Jordan in the east, Mediterranean in the west. From the river to the sea, the land of Palestine shall be be free. Well, what is between the river and the sea? Israel. They want to get rid of Israel. Uh, They don't want a piece of Israel. They want to get rid of all of it. 
In fact, in our Pastor's Point of View podcast that we do every week, we quoted one of the leaders of Hamas that came out and said that. Oh, we gotta, we got to free that land from Israeli occupation. The interviewer said, what land are you talking about, Gaza? Oh, no, we're not talking about Gaza. The little southwestern strip there in the within the borders of Israel. We're not talking about Gaza. We're talking about Israel. And the reporter said, like all of Israel? And he said, yes, of course. Now, NBC never reported on that. ABC never reported on it. CNN never reported on it. Washington Post never reported on it. In fact, most Americans don't even know that statement was made. What is happening in the Middle East is not about Gaza. It is about the world conquest of Islam. And Israel is in the way. And I don't have to tell this group, maybe I do, but the border, our southern border is wide open. Follow the work of Todd Benzman written books on this, appears on interviews constantly. We have absolutely no idea who's coming through that southern border. OTM, other than Mexican as it's called, are coming through constantly. Todd Benzman has interviewed the people. People from uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia. You name the Middle Eastern country, they're coming through. We have no idea what they think. We have no idea what they believe. We don't even vet them. What I'm saying is coming to a theater near you soon. You cannot look at what's happening in the Middle East as just some little skirmish over there that has no impact on the United States. This is about the world conquest of an ideology that is called Islam. We saw the name Israel, what that means. Do you know what the name Islam means? It means submission. Well, gee, Pastor, you shouldn't um, put down other people's religions. Here's the truth of the matter, folks. You, you read the founding documents of Islam. You read the Quran. You read the Hadith. And what you'll see very, very fast is those documents have very little to do with religion. They have to do with the subjugation of the masses in what is called Sharia law. Islam, just like Marxism, and by the way, the Marxists and the Islamists, they get along great. It's called the red-green axis. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they're going to continue to get along great as long as they have a mutual enemy. The little Satan, Israel. The big Satan, the United States of America. Those aren't my words. That's what they chant in Iran regularly. And if there's ever a time to understand what's happening in our world and understand what God says about it, I think this would be the time. Who owns the land? The nation of Israel owns the land by divine decree. In fact, this was taken on our recent trip. This was from Qatar Airlines. Uh, This was a flight that went from Qatar to Rome for some people to join us, people that I know from Australia. And as when you fly, um, there's maps that the airline will put up showing you where you're going, showing you how long it's going to take to get to your destination, that kind of thing. Well, here's the map on Qatar Airlines, and they took a picture of it. And I saw that picture on their phone. I go, I need need you to send that to me. Because what Qatar Airlines is communicating, uh, well, let's just play a little game here. Um, Can anybody tell me what's missing from this map? (laughs) There's no Israel. The nation of Israel doesn't even exist. Uh, 
In fact, what they write over the nation of Israel is Palestinian lands. How do you exactly negotiate with people and come up with land deals with people who don't even acknowledge your existence? doesn't make any sense. This is what Islam produces in terms of a political ideology. It is a horrific anti-Semitic virus moving through the Middle East, uh, moving through the United States, through our unfettered immigration policies currently, walking in cahoots with the left, the red-green access, and the world, former presidents, current presidents, are turning against the nation of Israel. And yet God says something different, doesn't he? Israel owns the land. Verse 13, Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. The communication of God stopped at that point. Don't get the impression that God in the Bible talks all the time directly to people. There's times he talks. There's times he doesn't talk. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. We have a sufficient revelation in Scripture. The truth has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Don't add or subtract from it. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. And yet that revelation, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, is adequate to equip you for every good work. And in these promises, we have everything we need. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, for all matters of faith and practice. What would, what would you do if God said all this to you? Well, we don't know because we weren't there. But look at what Jacob does. And we conclude here with verses 14 and 15. He starts to worship. First thing he does is he builds a memorial pillar right there in Bethel. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. That's what worship is. It's a response to truth. You're so overwhelmed at the the truth that you have received that you don't really know what to do other than get into some sort of environment to worship the Lord. The second part of verse uh, 14 says, A pillar of stone... And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured out oil on it. This is a fulfillment of what he said he would do when he was in Bethel over 20 years earlier. He said at that time in Genesis 28 verses 20 through 23, Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And everything that you give me, I will give you a tenth. The patriarchal practice of tithing we've tried to deal with that issue, what it means today uh, when we were in Genesis uh, 28, if you have an interest in that. He, he, he made good on his vow. He took this pillar, he poured oil on it. Now, he had done that before. But here he pours out a drink offering on it. Hey, God, this is your house. This is your place. That's where the name Bethel comes from. That's where El Bethel comes from. The God of the house of God. This is your house. This is your place. This is where you today and 20 years earlier communicated to me these great truths that you will now be working in history to fulfill. And that's how this place is named Bethel. Verse 15. So 
Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. He's given it that name before. Genesis 28:19, Genesis 35, verse 3 and verse 7. But now it looks like it has a new emphasis. This is a, a new house of God. He's honoring a previous event. He's honoring a place of worship. He's honoring a place of offerings. And that's how we respond to truth. We, we, we worship. We praise the Lord. What did Jesus say in John 4? God is meant to be worshipped in spirit and truth. It's the truth of his promises that give us an emphasis to worship him in spirit. Yeah, but what about Benjamin? Well, we'll talk about Benjamin next week in verses 16 through 20. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for how it speaks and clarifies our thoughts, sometimes speaking to the great issues of the day. Help us to be biblicists that look at your word through your eternal lens. Help us to not be tossed to and fro by perpetual propaganda. Make us, Lord, people of the book and give us the ability and the compassion to share this perspective with others. And Lord, if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice that is unsaved, I do pray specifically for them today that today is the day of salvation that they would place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their eternity, and the safekeeping of their souls. May it be, Lord, that many, many people within the sound of my voice in the building, watching or listening online, watching or listening archives after the fact, would be understanding as the Holy Spirit places them under conviction that they are not saved. No human being is saved by our own works. We're saved by the good work Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. We're simply willing to receive that as a free pardon, as a free gift by way of faith. I hope and trust, Lord, as your Spirit is at work, that many people would be placing their faith in the Savior. And Lord, as your children, help us to grow. Help us to understand your mind, particularly here at Sugarland Bible Church, as we continue to work through your word verse by verse. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.